0: Welcome everyone to the Hope Story Circle by the Peace Alliance. It's a beautiful day today in April. It's so nice to see all of your faces. My name is Terry Mason. I'm on the board of directors of the Peace Alliance and I'm joined to facilitate today by Yelena Popovich who is our Teaching Peace in Schools lead and Liz Gannon Graydon who is also on our board. Welcome to Peace On, your source for inspiring conversations and information from thought leaders across the spectrum on topics related to the strategies of building peace, fostering nonviolence, and creating a world that thrives, shifting our understanding toward empathy, compassion, and connection. And we're joined today by our special guest, Fran Smart Atticott, who is a very, um, you're going to hear a wonderful story today, I'm very excited, but Fran, if you could unmute yourself one thing that I was, I was interested to hear about is your background with music education in the Memphis schools. Can you talk about that just for a little bit? Sure.
1: Um, I graduated from uh, the University of Memphis with my master's degree and took a class in ORF music when I was there. So from there, I was drawn into the ORF music program, which is a way of teaching music to children that's creative and experiential, it takes children from where they, uh, where they are, what things that they like to do, like stamp and clap and sing and march around, and you take that and draw it in and create melody, harmony, uh, form, and just create a, a wonderful experience in music, so you teach them about music through doing things they like. So that was a very creative way for me to begin teaching. And, and I'll talk a little bit about my very first year, which wasn't dwarf music, but I came to that. So I taught for 15 years and then I was the supervisor of the program for 15 years. And then I retired. And in the middle of that, I was a choir director for 40 years. So at a chur- at different churches. So. That's
0: marvelous. That's a
1: fun and wonderful way to uh, make a living. Have to.
0: That's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. Sure. Well, as we get started, as we always do, let's just take a moment to get grounded, and Yelena will lead us in a short meditation, and then we'll go right into your story, Fran. Yelena?
2: Good morning, good afternoon, um, good evening, whatever in the world you are, and hello to everybody who's listening to this recording. Um, I'm just going to take a moment to ground us to this moment, to earth, to ourselves. So the invitation is, however, you know, you find yourself in a posture that is inviting and suiting and invites some ease, Get just, let go of all effort and allow yourself a moment of rest, a moment just to be. And you might want to anchor your attention, it to either the ground, the soles of your feet on this earth, or perhaps you wanna ground your attention to the breath and just follow your breath. For a moment. Whatever you choose, just give yourself permission to be As Terry has welcomed us into this April day, I invite you to welcome yourself. Welcome yourself to this moment. And welcome yourself to the story that Fran is going to tell. Thank you, Fran.
1: Welcome. Welcome, everybody. This is a story about my father and some of the lessons that I learned from him. And I thought I would start off by showing you a picture of him so that you could just see what a fine, handsome man he was. Some of you on this board are related to him, so you know well uh, what kind of a special person he was. Um, My father was a tall man who could stand out in a crowd. And that's why I, I knew he might be a target when he marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr in Memphis in 1968. Reverend Hinckley Smart was the librarian and Greek professor at Memphis Theological Seminary. He had other titles, minister, confessor, counselor, coach, lifeguard, storyteller, listener, golfer, and shade tree comedian. In 1968, he, along with the entire seminary faculty, marched to show solidarity with the sanitation strikers. Those were dark days. The black sanitation workers had especially horrible, unsafe working conditions, much worse than their white counterparts. Two of the black workers were crushed to death in an old malfunctioning truck. That incident and the lack of help or concern from the mayor's office helped set those marches in motion. My father and other ministers also marched into the mayor's office to demand that the strikers be given a living wage and that the mayor recognize their union and that the city government make the necessary changes to create a safe working environment. We're still working on that, aren't we? Sometime back, uh, Pete and I were watching some old footage of the civil rights events in Memphis and there across the screen, walked my father straight across in the mayor's office He stopped and stared down at the camera and moved on. I always knew where my father stood on civil rights. I didn't hear a lot of long-winded sermons on the topic, but he set the example throughout his life. He organized summer camps for African-American youth and took me along to help with crafts and music and anything that just needed an extra hand. He helped write the legislation that brought about the 1953 integration of Bethel College and what became the Memphis Theological Seminary. And I could see that he spoke to the president of the seminary and the Memphis sanitation workers with the same measure of respect and a firm handshake. A number of the seminary students have told me how much he meant to them. They often stopped by his office, which was kind of a tiny little space underneath the stairs with a slanty roof and the door was always open and they would come in and he would stop, turn from his work and give them his full attention. Uh, Counseling, telling stories and sharing his wisdom on life and ministry. He wrote a good many letters to the mayor and the newspapers, but one that I still have is especially dear to my heart. His letter to Mayor Hackett consisted of two short paragraphs. The first was a plea for the mayor to provide money for the National Civil Rights Museum And the second paragraph was a plea to provide water for the municipal golf courses. He wanted every child in the city to understand and envision the history of the civil rights events in Memphis. So they would know what had happened and why, and perhaps it wouldn't happen again. He also wanted all kids to get free lessons and have access to plush green public golf courses, civil rights and golf. And I think that kept him in balance. Um, I was in college when the marches began. And I remember calling my father uh, to talk to him about it, because I was worried. He told me that he would be going on the marches with the strikers And I could just picture him in the street, surrounded by people, but he's tall. He would stand out in the crowd and he would be easy to spot. I was really thinking about the people that might hate him simply for just being a part of this movement. I was uneasy and I told him so. I said, aren't you afraid? He said, well, it's just got to be done. So that's the way it was with him. No excuses, no avoidance, no ego, no self pride, just a job that had to be done so that others could have a decent life. That evening after the assassination of Dr. King I walked across the Bethel College campus with a group of students and I heard a friend of mine say that she was glad he was dead. She was immediately surrounded by a group of tall, angry African-American basketball players. And I thought she really might be in some serious trouble. I was shocked and disappointed at her words and I still remember how hard it was to speak to her again. But I still wish I had worked harder to help her understand how her words affected others and help her open her heart and mind to a better way of thinking about those who are different from her. Uh, The struggle continues today. It's much easier to avoid the difficult conversations instead of searching for effective ways to communicate in spite of our differences. I've always appreciated my parents' way of thinking. I can't imagine how hard it must be to grow up in a household where racist ideas are implanted at a young age and find a way out of that. But even with all the living examples in my household, I did not fully understand the difficult plight of many African-Americans in this country. I still can't really know because I didn't live it but I'm aware that I had many privileges that I did not earn. In 1971, I moved to Greenville, Mississippi to begin my teaching career. I became the 10th grade band and choir director in a school system that had been forced to integrate during the summer. Everyone was surprised at the changes and no one was happy. But I was sure that I could win the students over by loving them and teaching them wonderful music. That was not enough. The students needed so much more. First of all, they needed an experienced teacher and especially in that situation. And also one who had learned how to stand up and face adversity. And I was only 22, I hadn't learned that yet. I had a lot of support from my principal who was a well-respected black educator, a former NFL referee, big tough guy. But I faced other adults who made racist statements and assumed I would agree. One of them was my supervisor and I couldn't find the courage to speak up to him. I cried every day till Christmas, and then went home to spend some time with my parents and lick my wounds. Had long talks with my father, and although I don't remember the exact words, I do remember the essence of the conversations. Be yourself, be a person in your own right, Dare to say no when suggestions go against what you believe to be right and good. And stand up for the ones who need you the most. I returned to Greenville with a new spirit. No more weeping except to say goodbye at the end of the year to the band and choir members who by then had produced some beautiful music in the second semester and left us all with some lovely lasting memories. As I continued my teaching career, I measured many things against that year in Mississippi. I can tell you that nothing has ever been that hard since. I found my joy in teaching again. I made certain that the students in my classroom knew they had been seen and heard each time they came through the door and that the number one rule was to be kind. During these past years, I've attended marches in Memphis, classes on race relations, book studies on race relations, And I always think of my father and his passion for civil rights and freedom for all people. I have occasionally met someone on one of those marches that knew him or knew about him. And that was always very uplifting to me to just talk about him again. I think he might expect us to be farther along by now And I'm sorry, we're not. But I have to keep reminding myself to figure out in each instance, how to stand up, stare down at the camera and not be afraid to stand out in the crowd. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Fran. What a beautiful story. There's applause. Everybody's applauding in their videos. <laughs> they're, they're muted. Um, Yelena, Liz, would you like to frame an inquiry for the group?
2: Yeah, Terry. I'm still um, very touched last night when we were doing our planning call and um, And now it's just hearing it again. It's, um, thank you so much Fran for the way you share that story. Um, Yeah, the inquiry, um, something we talked about is how do you enter these difficult conversations? How do you stand out and stand up? Um, How do we practice? How do you practice that? So um, in a moment, I think Terry is going to invite us all into a small group conversations, but that is um, an invitation for you to explore in your small groups.
0: Exactly. So I'm gonna pause the recording and then when we come back, I'll start it again. Welcome back everyone. It's nice to see your faces. We had a few new people join during the breakout. So there is a little mix of people coming and going, which is kind of exciting and fun. Does anyone want to share anything that came out of the conversation in your breakout room? You feel free to unmute yourself and let us know.
3: Hello. Hi. I'm Uh, Jeff. Peter. Peter Atticott, and my wife and I were in a conversation with Itaf in Haifa,
0: mm. and,
3: or she had Palestine, and we were having a ever more interesting conversation about uh, the uh, division our our two societies are are facing. Ours going back 401 years or so to the root cause of our uh, what what I termed the uh, uh, primal sin, or, uh, is that the term that our society faces, which was slavery. And, uh, Pete and I were telling me tough about how right now, uh, we are confronting a wave. Maybe it will become, I hope, a final confrontation to resolve this situation, but we have, we are facing white supremacists, a very strong, virulent movement, uh, Based largely on ignorance, fear, resentfulness, and uh, and so we we were essentially asking Etop if she knew that what we were going through here, and we I said somewhat similar to Palestinian and Israeli uh, division of the population in artificial ways that are bad for everybody. And anyway
0: interesting parallel. You well, know, I, I,
3: I know. talked about how when I was 13, I went to uh, Bluffton, South Carolina, and my hosts, who I think were very proudly white segregationists, mm-hmm. took me to what they called uh, Negro Town, where, where the Black people all lived. And of course, they had no water and no paved streets. And this is was in the 60s, probably as the civil rights uh Protests were just beginning to ramp up. I was just a little too young on that side of the cusp
4: Mm.
3: for it, but anyway, something I've never forgotten. That's when we had segregated water fountains and restrooms and that great movie, The Green Book, which Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody
4: saw. Oh, yeah.
0: Wonderful movie. Mm -hmm. I was gonna mention you
4: talked about Haifa. I'm a member of the Baha'i faith, and that's our headquarters, Baha'i religion. Yes. yes, a member of, yeah, and Haifa is our holy city, Haifa, and Anaka, in, in, in Israel, yeah, or the Baha'i, Baha'i shrines and all that.
0: Interesting. the, okay. the
4: shrine of the Bab and the Baha'u and all that, yeah, and sure, uh, all the other people are, they're both buried there, yeah. Interesting. So that's interesting about Haifa, about the uh, Mm Baha'i. We're trying to get everybody the unity of mankind, oneness of mankind, oneness of God, and oneness of religion, progressive Mm -hmm. revelation. And yeah, that we're a garden in many colors. Now we should embrace them now.
5: I'm from Baltimore. And uh, are people from all over the country or South or what?
0: People are from all over the world
5: on this all conference. over the world yet
0: yes mm-hmm.
5: So was the theme black and white together sort of or what's the theme of this gathering?
0: I well, just Yeah, you know you came a little late, but the, the theme was France talk and was about her um, upbringing with her father, who was a civil rights advocate advocate and marched with Martin Luther King in the 1960s. and how so, she grew out of that.
5: Where was he from?
1: Memphis
5: Memphis Memphis and he was white yes a freedom rider
1: well maybe yeah he was not one of the official freedom riders that went on the bus yes and went down into Alabama and Mississippi but he mm-hmm. was a civil rights activist in Memphis uh, Wow as a minister
5: well I had a chance to be active in the peace movement, Bo- I mean, civil rights movement in Baltimore, and then went over to the peace movement. Spent mm. time, time in prison because of that.
1: Mm. Mm.
5: But the whole George Floyd trial is bringing so many issues up, and I just wish leaders like William Barber of Poor People's Campaign could come to the fore, because we tend to flash on these Horrible killings. Mm. And uh, the heroes that are building the same movements we had in the 60s, Cornell West, William Barber, I don't know who in Memphis, I'm sure you got some examples. Mm-hmm. They don't come to the fore. They're not covered. They're not supporters much.
0: Yeah, a good points Dave. If, it, if it's all right, I'd like to pivot back to the people who are in the breakout rooms who were here for Fran's talk to see if mm-hmm. anyone would like to share um, things that came up and I'm seeing Rob, raise your hand. Go ahead and unmute yourself, Rob.
6: Well, thank you. Geraldine, and I had a wonderful conversation in our breakout room. I shared with her my experience as a taxicab driver in New Haven, Connecticut in the late 1960s. Now, we've alluded to the late 1960s as times fraught with racial tension and a lot of tension and ill will. Well, I was driving a taxicab in New Haven during that. uh, I was a student at the Yale Divinity School. I had chosen to do a taxi cab driving as my field experience. Many students were going off to churches and synagogues to do a field experience. I wanted something different. So I chose to drive a taxi cab. Well, that, I never told my mother that until years later. Okay, because, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> because as you know, the late 1960s, you know, and especially in New Haven, uh, you know, with all these race riots and things. so. One part of this, one experience, I had many experiences, but one that stands out is that as a taxi cab driver, we worked with a dispatcher. I'm doing good, Billy. Okay, I'm ready. To be doing
5: good.
6: I'm working. And so we would, we worked with a dispatcher and we would say, well, I'm going to such and such an address with a fare. And the dispatcher would say, okay, uh, go over two streets to such and such an address because they've called in for a cab. And so unless you picked up a fare on the, on the street, you know this is how you spent your day, you're going from, from call to call based on what the dispatch wanted you to do. Well, that seemed to work well in theory, but as you know, black communities and minority communities are not well served by that type of service, by cab service. So what was happening was that whenever cab drivers were called, would, would take a fare into the black community, they would not call in where they were going or that they would drop off their fare. They would then go to the white neighborhoods and call in, and then they would get sent to a white, to a white uh, address. Mm-hmm. Well, being at the Yale Divinity School and thinking, well, I might go into the ministry, I ended up as an academic, but thinking, well, that's, you know, that's not part of the message. That's not part of the mission. That's not part of the disposition. So my goal was I go wherever I'm told to go. Well, I can remember being sent to a black bar late at night. I was the only face when I walked in the door. There were 50 guys there. Every face turned toward me. And I'll have to admit, I'll have to admit, I said, did someone call for a cab? <laughs> because I was so kind of nervous. And this huge black guy came up to me and looked right into my face and yeah, where the hell have you been? I called it half hour ago. And I said, I'm sorry, I've just gotten the call, uh, turned around and walk out and said, where would you like to go? So I guess in answer to one of the questions raised to Fran is "Well, what can we do? I think we can, it's individual things that we do that we help help each other realize that we all are human beings and that by reaching out in ways that may seem rather simple they can still be very significant. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Rob, so true. This has been such a wonderful, rich time together today. I'm going to put a few links in the chat um, for the Peace Alliance. The Peace Alliance is um, the host of these Hope Story Circles and of the Peace on Podcasts. And our mission is to empower civic action for a culture of peace. And the podcasts can be found at the link that I posted there, the Peace Peace on Podcasts for the Hope Story Circles and also our National Monthly Calls and a few other things. We also have a place on the website about the Hope Story Circles and a link to the Blueprint for Peace, which is a wonderful action you can take and notify all of your state and federal officials that you support and advocate for policy related to violence reduction and peace building. We are a nonprofit, a small nonprofit. We appreciate donations of any kind. So a link to donate is there. And also the calendar of events. That's where you'll find the information for our next Hope Story Circle, and our national monthly calls, and the national Department of Peacebuilding calls, and everything that we have going on. We'd love to have you join us. So, with that, I'd like to hand it off to Liz to wrap us up today.
7: Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Yelena. As always. Uh, for your presence and Fran for your story. I'm I'm going to try to kind of do justice pulling some threads together because Fran's story so touched my heart because her father reminded me so much of my own. And my father was not a, a minister but he was a college professor and civil rights activist in the sixties. And my very first memory of the world was the assassination of Martin Luther King. I was four years old and it was the first time I watched my dad cry while he was watching the television. Um, And then a few months later, um, when Bobby died, I just remember my father enfolding us in, Bobby and Martin and, um, and Sergeant Shriver, especially for those of you who know Sergeant Shriver, were great heroes to my dad. And I think what happened in that moment, because he had been very much an activist, but I think in that moment, what he saw were two fathers who didn't come home to their children And in that moment, Fran, my dad chose a different scale for his life. And I always said people, instead of becoming Bobby or Martin, he became George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life, right? He became became that neighbor who was just the good steady presence. And my dad was this beautiful man who had fought for civil rights, but then he raised us in Levittown, New York, which for those of you who have any sense of it, was not a hotbed of kind of liberal (laughs) thought. Um, but it was the place we could afford a house. And what my dad did, and I watched it, the thing you said, Fran, that so touched my heart, reminded me of my dad, is how he would speak to the president of the college, the way he would speak to a homeless person in the street. There was just such a dignity. And I watched people become better in my dad's presence, right? I knew there were people who didn't agree with him on certain things, but he always kind of gently challenged the narrative, but he did it with love. He did it with his presence. Um, And that's kind of a sense I was getting, Fran, when you spoke of your dad and what he's reminding me and what I'd love to kind of send us off with um, to think about in this week. I I remember one moment and it wasn't civil rights related, but my dad chose, he got all kinds of offers. He was fired from St. John's University. I'll just say this because it mattered for unionizing the faculty and after he passed I found a lot of um, letters that he got offers from huge universities for jobs and he turned them down and working at a tiny local college so he could be home every night with us and, um, and I think what mattered so much to me in my life was his friend said that witness of someone's presence, right? And you can do it on a large scale, or Dave, I think you maybe mentioned it, you can be the William Barber, you can be the person who stands out in the crowd. But I think there are also ways, you know, Rob, how you mentioned being the taxi driver who shows up. And 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 I think what I'm gonna walk away, friend, is this renewed sense of how important our presence is how important it is that we hold love in our heart and and whatever our encounters to challenge what needs to be challenged, but to do it with a sense of connection and love. And when we can kind of connect with that deep sense of love and presence in ourselves, I think it kind of, it it transforms the the encounters we can have. And I think that's what I'm gonna walk away with this week and I invite you all to just um, look at the faces um, of the other people. And there are lots of us here and just send each other off with that kind of beautiful, connecting, loving presence that'll help us walk through our days and our weeks ahead. Thank you, everybody.
0: You thank feel you. free to unmute yourself so that you can say goodbye. And thank you so much, Fran, for being our guest today. So Thank, you. Thank you for having Thank me. You, Fran. Thank, you, everyone. Thanks, thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us today at Peace On. We hope that it inspires you to engage in dialogue in your larger community. Peace On is brought to you by the Peace Alliance, found at peacealliance.org.